The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus 12, 1-13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much for reading that powerful and poignant passage of scripture for us. Um, Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. Um, See some of you for the first time in person in quite a while, so... Uh, my name is Paul Lim, and I've been serving here since January 2016 as a scholar in residence and also as the uh, advisor for content for Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. And my other position is at Vanderbilt University, uh, teaching in the Divinity School in the area of history of Christianity. So, um, so just a few days ago, I was um, going past our church, and I saw our church's sign or marquee. And I temporarily forgot who was preaching then, today, and I saw these words, 10 plagues. I remember thinking to myself, oh man, that's going to be a tough text. (laughs) Then this momentary kind of recollection came back, oh, you're the dude. Then I just quickly looked up some church signs. I just want to just, because this will be the only funny thing I'll say throughout the sermon, Uh, two signs. One said, um, Adam and Eve, the first people not to follow Apple terms and conditions. That's what it says in one of the church signs. Another one says, tweet others as you would like to be tweeted, as in T-W-E-E-T. So through these church signs, we can learn, but in our typical Presbyterian Pythian pungent sense, we just said 10 plagues. That's what we got going on today. So um, tomorrow is, in fact, every last Monday of since May since 1968 has been commemorated as Memorial Day. The historical roots of this federal holiday dates back to the end of the bloodiest military conflict fought 
by U.S. troops on our soil, the Civil War. At Arlington National Cemetery in the very first Memorial Day speech in May 1868, merely three years after the end of the Civil War, James Garfield, who would become President of these United States of America in 1881, said these words, I am burdened with a sense of impropriety of uttering words on this sacred occasion. If silence is ever golden, it must be here besides the graves of 15,000 men whose lives are more significant than speech, whose death was a poem, the music of which can never be sung. Today's text, just read for us, provides a crucial narrative concerning the institution and foundation of a key national holiday for the Israelites, a day to be memorialized, indeed so much so that it was to recalibrate their calendars, a holy day commemoration of what would be known as Passover or the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Before we make a very quick and unfair jump to the Lord's Supper, I'd like for us to spend the next 22 minutes to be exact, thinking about this connection between these two events. The, first, the writer of the first five books of Moses here in Exodus shows all the readers, all those who are not privy to this truly spectacular display of God's power over all other forces, persons, idols, and deities of Egypt, who God is, and who are the people of God. Today's text from Exodus 12 offers a culmination of the great story of liberation of the people of God from literal bondage of slavery for nearly four centuries, and a divine mandate for the people of God to remember this bloody day. Throughout the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there are often repeated sayings about the identities of God and of Israel. Identity of the God of Israel, this is what God says about himself. Again and again, it says, I am the Lord. It could be construed as I am the Lord, or I am as a self-referential point and person God would be the, I guess one way of looking at it, might be the most interesting person in the universe who when asked for a letter of recommendation or reference, the only person who would be qualified to write for him would be himself. That I am the beginning and the end. I am all things to all people. Regarding the people of Israel, God reminds them they were once slaves in Egypt and that they were bought at a price. Put differently, the Passover event of redemption was preceded by a long period of revulsion, an excruciating experience of making brick without mortar, an experience of having their own sons killed before they could even reach the age of two by the Egyptian hands, at least in one generation during the generation of Moses. These are not fun and delightful words and stories to read. And yet they are part of the Jewish scripture, part of Christian scripture. So we must wrestle with the meaning and the implication then and now. The theological significance, far beyond the historical details, was that this was a foray into a much larger and symbolic representation of the battle between God and all the rages, rage and fury of hell as localized here in Egypt. So how should we be reading this story 
Before that, how did the first recipients and celebrants of this new national holiday, Memorial Day for them, how did they interpret, how did they prepare, how did they eat, and how did they tell the story of first and many other Passovers after that? So let's do this. We only have less than exactly 19 minutes to go through the rest of the time. So although we did not get to study in detail about the nine plagues that came before this last climactic plague that was read for us, we'll at least list them here and I'll just kind of enumerate what they were and then briefly, very briefly, talk about them. The first, the plague of blood came as in the turning of the water of River Nile into blood, indeed all the water in Egypt, that was followed by the plague of frogs, frogs in beds, frogs in ovens, frogs on your head. The third plague was a plague of lice, wherein dust was turned into lice and they were all over people and animals, which was followed by the plague of flies. Swarms of flies arrived in Egypt and ran through the land and ruined much of it. Then came the plague on livestock belonging to Egyptians. All livestock belonging to Egyptians died, but none of the livestock belonging to an Israelite suffered the same fate. Then came the plague of boils, festering boils breaking out on the people and livestock. It is one thing to have scratchy boils on you, but on your cows and horses. Holy cow. So this is followed by the plague of hail, Truly an act of God you can appreciate with our modern day sensibilities since I've experienced the plague of hell three times since moving to Nashville 15 years ago. Before that, for 39 years, never. Plague of locusts and the plague of darkness were numbers eight and nine. And then we come to today's text, the 10th plague. In chapter 11, verse 4 and following, the Lord tells Pharaoh, and it's important for us to remember that, this did not come as a surprise for Pharaoh. The Lord tells in no uncertain words, in no uncertain terms and clearly emphatic expressions that the judgment will come. Just as you have not listened to these other warnings issued to you, none of these plagues came without warning. They all came with warning, foretelling of the responsibility and capability of Pharaoh to respond to this divine warning. Because again and again, the Lord says, I want these people, let my people go so that they can do what? They can worship me. So there's a very important liturgical significance to what these words of uh, God through Moses uh, were about. That there is, it's about worship, it's about liberation, but it is ultimately about worship. The Lord tells Pharaoh that the final and the culminating judgment will come and that it'll take all the firstborn male, whether human or livestock, will suffer because of the obstinate and unrepentant heart of Pharaoh, who after even, after repeated urgings of let my people go, would not and did not listen. In other words, whatever else one can say about the severity or even cruelty of judgment of fury and death unleashed on the Egyptians, they couldn't say, especially Pharaoh himself, that they did not see that one coming. All the people living in Egypt were experiencing a night during which the Lord passed over the houses of Israelite slaves who were called to obey the sayings of the God of the universe and apply the blood of what I would call scape lamb on their door frames with some anticipation. They were told that this is going to happen the night, and it's really night of all nights for many of the slave Israelites. They're waiting for the act of God to fall upon the land 
And the only, the only qualification that they had was they simply obeyed this incredulous message of revelation from God. Some obvious were living in denial, namely the Egyptians, and we'll say more about the Egyptian lay people and likely none of the Israelites. This catastrophic event, or as C.S. Lewis calls it, eucatastrophic event, was to be remembered by all Israelites as a vindication of their prayers and the victory of their God. This will be the event that will shape all subsequent and even previous events in their collective memory as a nation purchased by the blood of the Lamb. So for the rest of this sermon, let's see the following three points. First, we will see the heart of Pharaoh. We'll talk about the heart of Pharaoh. Second will be bloody hell, bloodier redemption. And third and the final point will be, where is the lamb? First, heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a fascinating fall guy or kind of biblical doofus who is not only idiotic and immoral, but also insistent on exalting his interpretation of the way of life over and against that of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, after I wrote that sentence on my laptop, I realized, well, what else could he do, actually? He was part of the winning team's captain. He wasn't about to listen to a loser team's captain. You see what I mean? And yet, we again and again think that Pharaoh was the worst guy ever. In some ways, he was. But also, at the same time, I, I, I submit to you this morning that Pharaoh is also very, very prototypical of all of us. More to say on that one. We all like to beat up on this guy, this particular Pharaoh, whose identity is in all historical identity obscure to us. By the way, the entire field of anthropology was actually fueled and funded by this quest to find historical verifications to biblical narratives, whether it was this Pharaoh or Moses or David or all the way to Indiana Jones, Riders of the Lost Ark. Remember that movie, right? And you know what the, lost, the Ark was, right? Was it Ark of Noah? No, it was the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Universities such as Harvard, Tübingen, Princeton, Yale, Heidelberg, as well as Johns Hopkins became known for their Semitic collections of artifacts due to the frenzied effort to find the lost treasures and reconstruct away the veracity of biblical accounts of history, including this one about Pharaoh and Moses and the Exodus and parting of the Red Sea. So back to this Pharaoh then, this interesting guy, this doofus guy. Every time this Pharaoh is mentioned, I have had people ask me over the years, Hey, why does the Bible say that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? Ever wondered about that? Ever thought like, okay, because it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, I'm glad you asked, because this fall we'll have a series of Bible studies on hard sayings of the Bible, and one of the ones that we'll talk about is this one, Lord, the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. I'll just take the next few minutes, a couple of minutes to explain this, a couple of minutes to interpret this, you know, the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart, but let's see what we can do. So one of the ways of looking at this is the obvious tension between God predestinating all things as well as human free agency. We have easier understanding of free agency because if you're into sports, you know, oh, so-and-so just became a free agent. That means you can sign with any team, any which team you like. Divine predestination versus human free agency. If the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, then we, lo we logically follow that this poor Pharaoh, Pharaoh fellow is not guilty because he was actually not in control, that because of sheer divine force and necessity, he just had to do, he was just like a puppet. Then he can be absolved of all his responsibility since he was a robotic figure. 
how could he say no to God? Well, here's something worthy of delving into even during a sermon. During the nine plagues, okay, the nine plagues that we have just listed just a few minutes ago, each time a plague is about to happen, as I shared with you earlier, God warned Pharaoh through Moses as to what was going to happen. None of it came as a surprise. And it was followed by the preamble of let my people go so that they can worship me. And yet each time, Pharaoh basically gives middle finger to God and the messenger of God and did not and would not listen. For each of these plagues, Exodus tells us that either Pharaoh hardened his own heart or that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. For every one of these plagues, one of the response was, it tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Something happened to Pharaoh's heart. There's a hardening of heart, whether the agent behind it was Pharaoh himself or God, and whether it, it, what that tells us about the identity of God and the agency of human beings. I mean, that's what people have been kind of wondering about for quite a while. Guess what, though? Six out of these nine times when it talks about hardening of Pharaoh's heart, six out of the nine times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Three times, especially after plague number six, plague number eight, plague number nine, it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. These are contradictory or incompatible truths, many would say. Both Jewish and Christian traditions, however, did not see them as contradictory or incompatible, impossible to be kind of reasoned through. Each time the plague is introduced, Pharaoh and thus by extension, people of Egypt were warned about what was about to happen, and implicitly it was an indication that God of Israel was the God of history. I am telling you what is about to happen on your nation's stage. So implicitly it is saying that I am in control of all of history, and yet, and yet it seems unequivocally clear that God is involving and inviting the Egyptians to a response. I'm about to do this, what are you going to do? God knows all things, but God does not compel things to happen in spite of people's desires to do otherwise. When the Bible says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, it is equivalent to saying the Lord basically left Pharaoh to his own devices and desires. In other words, God took God's hands off of Pharaoh and said, okay, you want to be left alone to make choices? All right, you're on your own. Declaration of independence for moral decisions, national security issues, and diplomatic relation matters. Pharaoh, you want to do it all on your own? If I let go of your hands and your heart, then it'll inevitably have the effect of my hardening your heart because I'm just letting go. In other words, one of the things that both Jewish and Christian traditions began to develop was this idea of this desire of the human heart going the opposite direction of the desires of God's own heart. And Pharaoh has been often looked upon in both Jewish and Christian traditions as a prototypical figure of human rebellion disobedience. Basically, God is saying, you still want it? You still want to be independent? You got it. And you know who else picks that up? That theme is Romans chapter 1. Paul talks about God hardening, or God basically said, left them to our devices. God surrendered, surrendered them to the desires of the human heart to follow after idols and to worship, you know, inert objects and so on and so forth. And Paul is saying that basically God said, okay, you want to be left alone? I'm going to leave you alone. And left to your own devices and desires, you're going to do nothing but just self-absorb things that will ultimately lead to nothingness and destruction and separation from me. Not easy things for sure. 
The heart of Pharaoh is often portrayed as the worst of all hearts. Really, is he any worse than yours or mine? Now, a slightly more interesting question, although ultimately without satisfactory answers, is could Pharaoh have changed his heart? What if he said, yes, Yahweh is Israel's God and go and worship him? These are middle knowledge and counterfactual questions that we won't have satisfactory answers to, but so we have to deal with what is given to us in this plot line. I think we'll see that Pharaoh will not change his heart even after the bloody event of Passover. And that really did surprise me. Because even after the Passover, I thought, okay, maybe Pharaoh will learn. Maybe I will learn. And I just had to look at myself and say, you know, even after certain cataclysmic events, just when you think that you have learned your lesson, in many ways, I go back to my own, my own theological and existential vomit. Pharaoh, the same way, he and his charioteers and armies will have a sweeping defeat as they chased after the recently rescued slaves. The story, along with these stories of the plague and Passover, powerfully illustrate not only the heart of Pharaoh, but also of all the hearts of the listeners and readers of this story. Where's your heart? Where's my heart? Where's your heart when God calls you through this servant Moses and his books about who God is and what you're called to be? Will we listen? Will you change your path from that of destruction to that of redemption? How will you respond to the blood of the Paschal Lamb? That leads me to the second point. The second point is bloody hell, bloodier redemption. Yes, I realize the expression bloody hell is perhaps slightly inappropriate lexical choice for a preacher. But then again, so is the story of bloody genocide that is written about here in Exodus 12. I tell you what, I've often wondered how Egyptian Christians would feel about this story. Do you hear what I just said? In case you missed it, let me say it again. What if you're an Egyptian Christian reading this story? So when I was a graduate student in England, I think I, I ran into more Egyptians in England than I have here in North America. And I had a friend in the department who was actually an Egyptian Coptic Christian. And we were talking about this, that, and other, and we're talking about our faith, tradition, and journey. And somehow, I guess I, I, I asked him, hey, you know, just uh, curious about this. I, you don't have to answer it, but I'm just kind of curious. You know, whenever I'm introducing some thorny subject, I have to kind of apologize multiple times beforehand. And I said, you know what, but can I just ask you? And he said, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Said, well, you know, how do you as an Egyptian Christian read the Exodus story? And he looked at me and said, how do you think I should read it? I said, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm asking you because it's kind of perplexing to me. And he goes, why is that perplexing to you? I said, listen, man, you tell me. I mean, I'm just, I'm ready to listen and learn. <laughs> he goes, okay, I can relate to both the tragedy, he says, that befell all Egyptian families who lost their firstborn, whether human being or livestock animals. My friend said, because I am an Egyptian, and I'm not Pharaoh, I'm a follower of Pharaoh who's living in that country and doing what Pharaoh says should be the law. And we're not going to paint our door frames with blood because Pharaoh said, don't do that. So then he goes, as an Egyptian, when I read this story, it is a story of powerful, powerful judgment and indictment of what we as Egyptians have experienced. However, as a Christian, he says, I can truly celebrate the victory of God and commemorate its significance in my life journey today. I am an Egyptian and I am a Christian. I'm no different than you. And when he said that, I was really surprised. He looked me in the eyes and said, I am no different from you. And therein was that powerful gaze of friendship 
and also conviction because I thought he would be different from me in some ways. He said, spiritually speaking, we're all Egyptians who desperately need the covering of the blood of the Lamb. Damn. That was one of the most powerful lessons I've learned in my life. Because here I was assuming that you're an Egyptian Christian, so you must experience this differently. He goes, yes, I do. In some ways, yes, very much so. But at the same time, you are forgetting that you're also an Egyptian. Because to the extent that we isolate ourselves and identify ourselves as, oh, we're not them, then we're missing the entire point. The entire point is we are Egyptians and Christians. We're Egyptians. And you see what I mean? Because we would like to... I, I do, and I'm sure you do too. In any story we read, we are often more likely to identify with the winners and the losers. Are you with me on that? No, you're not like that? Okay, well, I get Kathy Marks. It's like, yeah, okay, thank you very much. One in hundred. I mean, are you like, I mean, like, can you identify? Like, when we read stories, we tend to want to identify with the winners, perhaps because we're losers in history. I don't know. But you know what I'm talking about. So my Egyptian friend who is a Christian said, you know what? You need to see yourself as, a, as, a, as an Egyptian too. See, bloody account of the death of all firstborn should offend your sensibilities, actually. If this, this account did not offend you in any way, let me be very honest. Something is wrong with you. These are offensive words. A preacher saying something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with me if I don't find this story offensive. You become so, we all became so accustomed to an Americanized version of the gospel equating Jesus with John Wayne and that you have no heart of sympathy or compassion for the losers of history. Egyptians, every time they read, they are reminded of some fact that, oh man, we are losers of history. I was teaching recently and, 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 and you know, a class, actually a week-long class in the history of Muslim-Christian relations and uh, we were talking about Jesus and, you know, all that, Muhammad and Islam and Christianity and I, you know, learned that all the students in the class, with the possible exception of one, were universalists, meaning like everyone will go to heaven. I said, okay, what about justice? I said, what about, because we, you care a lot about justice, so do I. See, justice for those whose lives are destroyed by the evil regimes, dictators, and policies, because you can make an argument, I think, that the Egyptian lives are destroyed because of this kind of a, a dictate of the, this, this uh, you know, uh, dictator, this pharaoh, who just said, I'm not gonna listen to uh, Yahweh. And I said, especially in 2020, we need both empathy and justice. Empathy without justice leads to a mere sentimentalism that ironically compounds and exacerbates the, the issue of justice. Justice without empathy leads to a greater injustice because your version of justice is a thinly veiled attempt at revenge. Here we see in this story of Exodus, God's way of justice is justice with empathy or shall we say justice incarnated in the event of Jesus Christ, who is called the Lamb of God. Whether you believe in the third and the fourth coming point or not, whether Jewish or Christian or any secular reader, one has to see this obvious point. It was literally a bloody hell type of event, an unimaginable tragedy. You follow your president, Pharaoh, or prime minister's order, you do this because I'm telling you by policy, Pharaoh said, then you wake up and all your oldest sons, or if you have just one son like I do, that one son is dead. What did he do? Imagine, in our country, because the president says, whether Trump or Biden or Obama or Bush, you take your pick. The president says, 
don't listen to whatever the message is because the message says if you don't do this your firstborn will die we say as good citizens of this country we should listen to the president next morning we wake up all of our oldest sons terrifying stories say it ain't so they're dead if you can sympathize with that empathize with that now we're getting somewhere because that's what happened and we can say yeah those loser Egyptians they were terrible people maybe they were and then if we just say that's them and not us then we lose the entire point just with the story of Moses and also with the story of Jesus regarding both their birth to save their lives there are a lot of collateral damages I have often wondered about that I don't have any answers for it but it seems like because Moses was born other Jewish based sons had to be killed when Jesus was born because of the fury of, of King Herod Egypt, I mean Israel, you know, Jewish babies under the age of two were murdered. Mystery of divine predestination, human free agency. That leads me to my final point, and I need to hurry up. Where is the lamb? Who on earth is the lamb? Whatever one can say about the relationship between the Passover celebrated by Jesus and his followers in the first century Judaism and Jesus himself, one thing that is clear is that from the earliest of Christian traditions, there was a converging consensus that Jesus was the Lamb of God. I don't know if you noticed that, but that from the very, very beginning pages of the Gospels and the letters, there is an emerging consensus that Jesus is often called the Lamb of God. And we say, how is that possible? Well, I mean, it is really interesting because that was the, the focal point of Jesus' messianic office. In the, in the religious imagination and the response to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, early followers of Christ said, here is the Lamb of God. Guess where that happens? It's in the Gospel of John. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Luke chapter eleven twenty, Jesus says, and after he casts out demons and so on, people are saying, you're a demon-possessed person. And Jesus' response is this, but it is if by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This expression of finger of God, guess where, guess where it else shows up? It also shows up in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. When the plague of lice happened, the Egyptian sorcerers, a.k.a. the predecessor of Harry Potter, they said, this is the finger of God. The same power of God is at work both in that of Moses and that of the one greater than Moses, Jesus himself. So, and then the final, final story is this. John 19, we find the story of Jesus' crucifixion, and it says to fulfill the scriptures, not one of his bones will be broken. Some scholars say it's a reference to Psalm 34, 19, 20, but also it is a reference to Exodus 12, where it says that the, the Israelites are told, do not break any of the bones of the Paschal Lamb. So Jesus, that's why in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, Jesus is told by, called by the Apostle Paul, Jesus is our Passover lamb. So let me finish right now. John Levinson is a professor of Jewish studies at Harvard University, and in his very, very important and significant book um, called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son, he makes a very important connection between the near-death experience of Isaac and the way that Christian traditions constructed the identity of Jesus and saw the connection between Isaac and Jesus as both beloved sons who does, who one does not experience death, but the other one does. Where is the lamb was the question. Remember that? Where is the lamb was the question asked by Isaac. And Abraham, perhaps in desperate cry of faith, said, God himself will provide the lamb, little realizing that God will do so 
in the death and the coming of the, his own beloved eternal son. Death of the firstborn leads to dedication of the firstborn, death of the first and foreverborn son of God. Here we are. Here's the Lamb of God. What will you do with him? How will you respond to him in life? And as we have right here uh, about to celebrate the Christian version of the Passover called the Lord's Supper. 17th century Puritan theologian John Owen and 20th century Catholic nun Mother Teresa have both said in so many words that in light of such a great sacrifice by the all-loving and all-knowing God in giving us his son, then in response to such an act, the only response deserving of that is to offer nothing less than ourselves to him. Or to close with the words of my favorite French pastor, John Calvin, he said, I offer to you, my Lord, my heart, promptly without any delay and sincerely without any duplicity. Command what you will and grant what you command. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your wonderful mercies that are new every day. We thank you for the gift of word, gift of the word of God that was written down, passed on to generations after generations, arriving here on our screen or in our printed text. As we have encountered the story of the last plague and the first Passover, and Christ being our Passover because of his own bloody death and resurrection, we are humbled to know that you will involve yourself in our messy storylines. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in humbling us to see ourselves as Egyptians in need of your blood and as Christians who see the saving significance of the first lamb as fulfilled in the final and the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. As we come to the table now, may you do your wonderful work of invitation and further sealing of our hearts with you and in you. In Jesus' name, amen.